Chapter Four of Clementina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Clementina by A. E. W. Mason. Chapter Four shows that there are better hiding places than a window curtain. Monsieur Chateaudoux, the chamberlain, was a little portly person with a round red face like a cherub's. He was a creature of the house, one that walked with delicate steps, a conductor of ceremonies, an expert in the subtleties of etiquette, and once he held his wand of office in his hand, there was nowhere to be found a being so precise and consequential. But out of doors he had the timidity of a cat. He lived, however, by rule and rote, and since it had always been his habit to take the air between three and four of the afternoon, he was to be seen between those hours at Innsbruck on any fine day, mincing along the avenue of trees before the villa in which his mistress was held prisoner. On one afternoon during the month of October he passed a hawker, who, tired with his day's tramp, was resting on a bench in the avenue, and who carried upon his arm a half-empty basket of cheap wares. The man was ragged, his toes were thrusting through his shoes, it was evident that he wore no linen, and a week's growth of beard dirtily stubbled his chin. In a word, he was a man from whom Monsieur Chateaudoux's prim soul positively shrank. Monsieur Chateaudoux went quickly by, fearing to be pestered for alms. The hawker, however, remained seated upon the bench, drawing idle patterns upon the gravel with a hazel stick stolen from a hedgerow. The next afternoon the hawker was in the avenue again, only this time on a bench at the opposite end, and again he paid no heed to Monsieur Chateaudoux, but sat moodily scraping the gravel with his stick. On the third afternoon Monsieur Chateaudoux found the hawker seated in the middle of the avenue and over against the door of the guarded villa. Monsieur Chateaudoux, when his timidity slept, was capable of good nature. There was a soldier with a loaded musket in full view. The hawker, besides, had not pestered him. He determined to buy some small thing, a mirror, perhaps, which was always useful, and he approached the hawker, who for his part wearily flicked the gravel with his stick, and drew a curve here and a line there, until, as Monsieur Chateaudoux stopped before the bench, there lay sketched at his feet the rude resemblance of a crown. The stick swept over it the next instant and left the gravel smooth. But Monsieur Chateaudoux had seen, and his heart fluttered and sank, for here were plots, possibly dangers, most certainly trepidations. He turned his back as though he had seen nothing, and, constraining himself to a slow pace, walked towards the door of the villa. But the hawker was now at his side, whining in execrable German and a strong French accent the remarkable value of his wares. There were samplers most exquisitely worked, jewels for the most noble gentleman's honoured sweetheart, and purses which emperors would give a deal to buy. Chateaudoux was urged to take notice that emperors would give sums to lay a hand on the hawker's purses. Monsieur Chateaudoux pretended not to hear. I want nothing, he said, nothing in the world, and he repeated the statement in order to drown the other's voice. A purse, good gentleman, persisted the hawker, and he dangled one before Chateaudoux's eyes. Not for anything would Chateaudoux take that purse. 
"'Go away,' he cried. "'I have a sufficiency of purses, and I will not be plagued by you.' They were now at the steps of the villa, and the sentry, lifting the butt of his musket, roughly thrust the hawker back. "'What have you there? Bring your basket here,' said he. And to Chateaudoux's consternation the hawker immediately offered the purse to the sentinel. "'It is only the poor who have kind hearts,' he said. "'Here's the proper purse for a soldier. It is so hard to get the money out that a man is saved an ocean of drink.' The hawker's readiness destroyed any suspicions the sentinel may have felt. "'Go away,' he said. "'Quick!' "'You will buy the purse?' The sentinel raised the musket again. "'Then the kind gentleman will,' said the hawker, and he thrust the purse into Monsieur Chateaudoux's reluctant hand. Chateaudoux could feel within the purse a folded paper. He was committed now without a doubt, and in an extreme alarm he flung a coin into the roadway and got him into the house. The sentinel carelessly dropped the butt of his musket on the coin. "'Go,' said he, and with a sudden kick he lifted the hawker half across the road. The hawker happened to be Charles Wogan, who took a little matter like that with the necessary philosophy. He picked himself up and limped off. Now the next day a remarkable thing happened. Monsieur Chateaudoux swerved from the regularity of his habits. He walked along the avenue, it is true, but at the end of it he tripped down a street and turned out of that into another which brought him to the arcades. He did not appear to enjoy his walk. Indeed, any hurrying footsteps behind startled him exceedingly and made his face turn white and red and his body hot and cold. However, he proceeded along the arcades to the cathedral, which he entered and just as the clock struck half-past three in a dark corner opposite to the third of the great statues he drew his handkerchief from his pocket the handkerchief flipped out a letter which fell on to the ground in the gloom it was barely visible and monsieur chateaudoux walked on apparently unconscious of his loss but a comfortable citizen in a snuff-coloured suit picked it up and walked straight out of the cathedral to the golden fleece inn in the hochstrasse where he lodged he went up into his room and examined the letter it was superscribed to monsieur chateaudoux and the seal was broken nevertheless the finder did not scruple to read it it was a love-letter to the little gentleman from one friedrica "'I am heartbroken,' wrote Friedrika, "'but my fidelity to my Chateau Doux has not faltered, nor will not, "'whatever I may be called upon to endure. "'I cannot, however, be so undutiful as to accept my Chateau Doux's addresses "'without my father's consent, "'and my mother, who is of the same mind with me, "'insists that even with that consent a runaway marriage is not to be thought of "'unless my Chateau Doux can provide me with a suitable woman for an attendant.' these conditions fulfilled friedrica was willing to follow her chateau doux to the world's end the comfortable citizen in the snuff-coloured suit sat for some while over that letter with a strange light upon his face and a smile of great happiness the comfortable citizen was charles wogan and he could dissociate the obstructions of the mother from the willingness of the girl the october evening wove its veils from the mountain crests across the valleys 
The sun and the daylight had gone from the room before Wogan tore that letter up and wrote another to the Chevalier at Bologna, telling him that the Princess Clementina would venture herself gladly if he could secure the consent of Prince Sobieski, her father. And the next morning he drove out in a carriage towards Olau in Silesia. It was as the Chevalier Warner that he had first journeyed thither to solicit for his king the Princess Clementina's hand, Consequently, he used that name again. Winter came upon him as he went. The snow gathered thick upon the hills and crept down into the valleys, encumbering his path. The cold nipped his bones. He drove beneath great clouds and through a stinging air. But of these discomforts he was not sensible, for the mission he was set upon filled his thoughts and ran like a fever in his blood. He lay awake at nights inventing schemes of evasion, and each morning showed a flaw, and the schemes crumbled. Not that his faith faltered. At some one moment he felt sure the perfect plan, swift and secret, would be revealed to him, and he lived to seize the moment. The people with whom he spoke became as shadows. The inns where he rested were confused into a common semblance. He was like a man in a trance, seeing ever before his eyes the guarded villa at Innsbruck, and behind the walls, patient and watchful, the face of the chosen woman, so that it was almost with surprise that he looked down one afternoon from the brim of a pass in the hills, and saw beneath him, hooded with snow, the roofs and towers of Olau. At Olau, Wogan came to the end of his luck. From the moment when he presented his letter, he was aware of it. The prince was broken by his humiliations and the sufferings of his wife and daughter. He was even inclined to resent them at the expense of the chevalier, for in his welcome to Wogan there was a measure of embarrassment. His shoulders, which had before been erect, now stooped. His eyes were veiled, the fire had burnt out in him. He was an old man visibly aging to his grave. He read the letter and re-read it. "'No,' said he impatiently, "'I must now think of my daughter. "'Her dignity and her birth forbid "'that she should run like a criminal in fear of capture, "'and at the peril, very likely, of her life, "'to a king who, after all, is yet without a crown.' "'And then, seeing Wogan flush at the words, "'he softened them. "'I frankly say to you, Mr. Warner, "'that I know no one to whom I would sooner entrust my daughter than yourself, "'were I persuaded to this project.' but it is doomed to fail it would make us the laughing-stock of europe and i ask you to forget it do you fancy the emperor guards my daughter so ill that you single-handed can take her from beneath his hand your highness i shall choose some tried friends to help me there is no single chance of success i ask you to forget it and pass your christmas here as my very good friend the sight is longer in age mr warner than in youth and I see far enough now to know that the days of Don Quixote are dead. Here is a matter where all Europe is ranged and alert on one side or the other. You cannot practice secrecy. At Olau your face is known, your incognito too. Mr. Warner came to Olau once before, and the business on which he came is common knowledge. The motive of your visit now, which I tell you openly is very grateful to me, will surely be suspected." Wogan had reason that night to acknowledge the justice of the prince's argument. 
he accepted his hospitality thinking that with time he would persuade him to allow the attempt and after supper while making riddles in verse to amuse some of the ladies of the court one of them the countess of berg came forward from a corner where she had been busy with pencil and paper and said it is our turn now here mr warner is an acrostic which i ask you to solve for me and with a smile which held a spice of malice she handed him the paper upon it there were ten rhymed couplets wogan solved the first four and found that the initial letters of the words were c l e m the answer to the acrostic was clementina wogan gave the paper back i can make neither head nor tail of it said he the attempt is beyond my powers ah said she dryly you own as much i would never have believed you would have owned it but what is the answer asked a voice at which wogan started the answer replied the countess is mary queen of scots who was most unjustly imprisoned in fotheringay and she tore the paper into tiny pieces. Wogan turned towards the voice which had so startled him, and saw the gossamer lady whom he had befriended on the road from Florence. At once he rose and bowed to her. "'I should have presented you before to my friend, Lady Featherstone,' said the Countess. "'But it seems you are already acquainted.' "'Indeed, Mr. Warner did me a great service at a pinch,' said Lady Featherstone. "'He was my postillion.' though I never paid him, as I do now in thanks. "'Your postillion!' cried one or two of the ladies, and they gathered about the great stove as Lady Featherstone told the story of Wogan's charioting. "'I bade him hurry,' said she, and he outsped my bidding. Never was there a postillion so considerately inconsiderate. I was tossed like a tennis-ball. I was one black bruise. I bounced from cushion to cushion.' and then he drew up with a jerk, sprang off his horse, vanished into a house, and left me, panting and dishevelled, a twist of torn ribbons and lace, alone in my carriage in the streets of Bologna. Bologna! Ah! said the countess, with a smile of significance at Wogan. Wogan was looking at Lady Featherstone. His curiosity, thrust into the back of his mind by the more important matter of his mission, now revived what had been this lady's business who travelled alone to bologna and in such desperate haste your ladyship i remember he said gave me to understand that you were sorely put to it to reach bologna her ladyship turned her blue eyes frankly upon wogan then she lowered them my brother she explained lay at death's door in venice I had just landed at Leghorn, where I left my maid to recover from the sea, and, hurrying across Italy as I did, I still feared that I should not see him alive. The explanation was made readily in a low voice natural to one remembering a great distress, but without any affectation of gesture or so much as a glance sideways to note whether Wogan received it trustfully or not. Wogan, indeed, was reassured in a great measure. True, the Countess of Berg was now his declared enemy, but he need not join all her friends in that hostility. "'I was able, most happily,' continued Lady Featherstone, "'to send my brother homewards in a ship a fortnight back, "'and so to stay with my friend here on my way to Vienna, "'for we English are all bitten with the madness of travel. "'Mr. Warner will bear me out?' 
to be sure i will said wogan stoutly for here am i in the depths of winter journeying to the carnival in italy the countess smiled all disbelief and amusement and lady featherstone turned quickly towards him for my frankness i claim a like frankness in return said she with a pretty imperiousness wogan was a little startled he suddenly remembered that he had pretended to know no english on the road to bologna nor had he given any reason for his haste but it was upon neither of these matters that she desired to question him you spoke in parables said she which are detestable things you said you would not lose your black horse for the world because the lady you were to marry would ride upon it into your city of dreams there's a saying that has a provoking prettiness i claim a frank answer wogan was silent and his face took on the look of a dreamer come said one it was the princess charlotte the second daughter of the prince sobieski who spoke we shall not let you off said she wogan knew that she would not she was a girl who was never checked by any inconvenience her speech might cause her tongue was a watchman's rattle and she never spoke but she laughed to point the speech be frank said the countess it is a matter of the heart and so proper food for women true answered wogan lightly it is a matter of the heart and in such matters can one be frank even to oneself wogan was immediately puzzled by the curious look lady featherstone gave him the words were a mere excuse yet she seemed to take them very seriously her eyes sounded him yes she said slowly are you frank even to yourself and she spoke as though a knowledge of the answer would make a task easier to her wogan's speculations however were interrupted by the entrance of princess casimira sobieski's eldest daughter wogan welcomed her coming for the first time in all his life for she was a killjoy a person of an extraordinary decorum according to wogan she was that black care upon the horseman's back which the poets write about her first question if she was spoken to was whether the speaker was from top to toe fitly attired her second whether the words spoken were well bred at this moment however her mere presence put an end to the demands for an explanation of wogan's saying about his horse and in a grateful mood to her he slipped from the room this evening was but one of many during that christmas tide wogan must wear an easy countenance though his heart grew heavy as lead the countess of berg was the prince constantine's favourite and wogan was not slow to discover that her smiling face and quiet eyes hid the most masterful woman at that court he made himself her assiduous servant whether in hunting amid the snow or in the entertainments at the palace but a quizzical deliberate word would now and again show him that she was still his enemy with the princess casimira he was a profound critic of observances he invented a new cravat and was most careful that there should never be a wrinkle in his stockings with the princess charlotte he laughed till his head sang he played all manner of parts the palace might have been the stage of a pantomime and he himself the harlequin but for all his efforts it did not seem that he advanced his cause and if he made headway one evening with the prince the next morning he had lost it and so christmas came and passed 
but two days after christmas a courier brought a letter to the castle he came in the evening and the letter was carried to wogan while he was at table he noticed at once that it was in his king's hand and he slipped it quietly into his pocket it may have been something precipitate in his manner or it may have been merely that all were on the alert to mark his actions but at once curiosity was aroused no plain words were said but here and there heads nodded together and whispered and while some eyed wogan suspiciously a few women whose hearts were tuned to a sympathy with the princess in her imprisonment or touched with the notion of a romantic attachment smiled upon him their encouragement the Countess of Berg, for once, was unobservant, however. Wogan made his escape from the company as soon as he could, and, going up to his apartments, read the letter. The moon was at its full, and with that clear frosty air, and the snow stretched over the world like a white counterpane, he was able to read the letter by the window without the light of a candle. It was written in the Chevalier's own cipher and hand, it asked anxiously for news and gave some wogan had had occasion before to learn that cipher by heart he stood by the window and spelled the meaning then he turned to go down but at the door his foot slipped upon the polished boards and he stumbled on to his knees he picked himself up and thinking no more of the matter rejoined the company in a room where the countess of berg was playing upon a harp the king said wogan drawing the prince apart leaves bologna for rome so the letter came from him asked the prince with an eagerness which could not but seem hopeful to his companion and in his own hand replied wogan the prince shuffled and hesitated as though he was curious to hear particulars wogan thought it wise to provoke his curiosity by disregarding it it seemed that there was wisdom in his reticence for a little later the prince took him aside while the countess of berg was still playing upon her harp and said single-handed you could do nothing you would need friends wogan took a slip of paper from his pocket and gave it to the prince on that slip said he i wrote down the names of all the friends whom i could trust and by the side of the names the places where i could lay my hands upon them one after the other i erased the names until only three remained the prince nodded and read out the names gaden Messay, o'toole they are good men the flower of ireland those three names have been my comfort these last three weeks and all the three at schlefstadt how comes that about your highness they are all three officers in dillon's irish regiment and so have that further advantage advantage your highness said wogan schlestadt is near to strasbourg which again is not far from innsbruck and being in french territory would be the most convenient place to set off from there was a sound of a door shutting the prince started looked at wogan and laughed he had been upon the verge of yielding but for that door wogan felt sure he would have yielded now however he merely walked away to the countess of berg and sitting beside her asked her to play a particular tune but he still held the slip of paper in his hand and paid a scanty heed to the music now and then looking doubtfully towards wogan now and then scanning that long list of names 
His lips, too, moved as though he was framing the three selected names, Gaydon, Misset, O'Toole, and Schlestadt as a bracket uniting them. Then he suddenly rose up and crossed the room to Wogan. "'My daughter wrote that a woman must attend her. It is a necessary provision. "'Your Highness, Misset has a wife, and the wife matches him.' They are warned to be ready? At your highness's first word, that slip of paper travels to Schlestadt. It is unsigned, it imperils no one, it betrays nothing, but it will tell its story nonetheless surely to those three men, for Gaydon knows my hand. The prince smiled in approval. You have prudence, Mr. Warner, as well as audacity, said he. He gave the paper back, listened for a little to the countess who was bending over her harp-strings and then remarked the prince's letter was in his own hand too but in cipher ah the prince was silent for a while he balanced himself first on one foot then on the other ciphers said he are curious things compelling to the imagination and a provocation to the intellect Mr. Wogan kept a grave face, and he replied with unconcern, though his heart beat quick, for if the prince had so much desire to see the chevalier's letter, he must be well upon his way to consenting to Wogan's plan. "'If your highness will do me the honour to look at this cipher, it has baffled the most expert.' His highness condescended to be pleased with Wogan's suggestion." Wogan crossed the room towards the door, but before he reached it, the Countess of Berg suddenly took her fingers from her harp-strings with a gesture of annoyance. "'Mr. Warner,' she said, "'will you do me the favour to screw this wire tighter?' And once or twice she struck it with her fingers. "'May I claim that privilege?' said the Prince. "'Your Highness does me too much honour," said the Countess, but the Prince was already at her side." At once she pointed out to him the particular string. Wogan went from the room and up the great staircase. He was lodged in a wing of the palace. From the head of the staircase he proceeded down a long passage. Towards the end of this passage another short passage branched off at a right angle on the left-hand side. At the corner of the two passages stood a table with a lamp and some candlesticks. This time Wogan took a candle and lighting it at the lamp turned into the short passage it was dark but for the light of wogan's candle and at the end of it facing him were two doors side by side both doors were closed and of these the one on the left gave on to his room wogan had walked perhaps halfway from the corner to his door before he stopped he stopped suddenly and held his breath then he shaded his candle with the palm of his hand and looked forward. Immediately he turned, and walking on tiptoe came silently back into the big passage. Even this was not well lighted. It stretched away upon his right and left, full of shadows. But it was silent. The only sounds which reached Wogan as he stood there and listened were the sounds of people moving and speaking at a great distance. He blew out his candle, cautiously replaced it on the table, and crept down again towards his room. There was no window in this small passage. There was no light there at all except a gleam of silver in front of him and close to the ground. That gleam of silver was the moonlight shining between the bottom of one of the doors and the boards of the passage. 
and that door was not the door to wogan's room but the room beside it where his door stood there might have been no door at all yet the moon which shone through the curtains of one room must needs also shine into the other unless indeed the curtains were drawn but earlier in the evening wogan had read a letter by the moonlight at his window the curtains were not drawn there was therefore a rug an obstruction of some sort against the bottom of the door but earlier in the evening wogan's foot had slipped upon the polished boards there had been no mat or skin at all it had been pushed there since wogan could not doubt for what reason it was to conceal the light of a lamp or candle within the room someone in a word was prying in wogan's room and wogan began to consider who it was not the countess who was engaged upon her harp but the countess had tried to detain him wogan was startled as he understood the reason of her harp becoming so suddenly untuned she had spoken to him with so natural a spontaneity she had accepted the prince's aid with so complete an absence of embarrassment but none the less wogan was sure that she knew moreover a door had shut yes while he was speaking to the prince a door had shut so far wogan's speculations had travelled when the moonlight streamed out beneath his door too it made now a silver line across the passage broken at the middle by the wall between the rooms the mat had been removed the candle put out the prying was at an end in another moment the door would surely open now wogan however anxious to discover who it was that spied was yet more anxious that the spy should not discover that the spying was detected he himself knew and so was armed he did not wish to arm his enemies with a like knowledge there was no corner in the passage to conceal him there was no other door behind which he could slip when the spy came out wogan would inevitably be discovered he made up his mind on the instant he crept back quickly and silently out of the mouth of the passage then he made a noise with his feet turned again into the passage and walked loudly towards his door even so he was only just in time had he waited a moment longer he would have been detected for even as he turned the corner there was already a vertical line of silver on the passage wall the door had already been opened but as his footsteps sounded on the boards that line disappeared he walked slowly giving his spy time to replace the letter time to hide he purposely carried no candle he reached his door and opened it the room to all seeming was empty wogan crossed to a table looking neither to the right nor the left above all not looking towards the bed hangings he found the letter upon the table just as he had left it it could convey no knowledge of his mission he was sure it had not even the appearance of a letter in cipher it might have been a mere expression of christmas good wishes from one friend to another but to make his certainty more sure and at the same time to show that he had no suspicion anyone was hiding in the room he carried the letter over to the window and at once he was aware of the spy's hiding-place it was not the bed hangings but close at his side the heavy window-curtain bulged the spy was at his very elbow he had but to lift his arm 
and of a sudden the letter slipped from his hand to the floor. He did not drop it on purpose. He was fairly surprised, for looking down to read the letter, he had seen protruding from the curtain a jewelled shoe-buckle, and the foot which the buckle adorned seemed too small and slender for a man's. Wogan had an opportunity to make certain. He knelt down and picked up the letter. The foot was a woman's. As he rose up again, the curtain ever so slightly stirred. Wogan pretended to have remarked nothing. He stood easily by the window with his eyes upon his letter and his mind busy with guessing what woman his spy might be, and he remained on purpose for some while in this attitude, designing it as a punishment. So long as he stood by the window, that unknown woman cheek by jowl with him must hold her breath must never stir, must silently endure an agony of fear at each movement that he made. At last he moved, and as he turned away he saw something so unexpected that it startled him. Indeed, for the moment it did more than startle him, it chilled him. He understood that slight stirring of the curtain. The woman now held a dagger in her hand, and the point of the blade stuck out and shone in the moonlight like a flame. Wogan became angry. It was all very well for the woman to come spying into his room, but to take a dagger to him, to think a dagger in a woman's hand could cope with him, that was too preposterous. Wogan felt very much inclined to sweep that curtain aside and tell his visitor how he had escaped from Newgate and played hide-and-seek amongst the chimney-pots. And although he restrained himself from that, he allowed his anger to get the better of his prudence. Under the impulse of his anger he acted. It was a whimsical thing that he did, and though he suffered for it he could never afterwards bring himself to regret it. He deliberately knelt down and kissed the instep of the foot which protruded from the curtain. He felt the muscles of the foot tighten, but the foot was not withdrawn. The curtain shivered and shook, but no cry came from behind it, and again the curtain hung motionless. Wogan went out of the room and carried the letter to the prince. The Countess of Berg was still playing upon her harp, and she gave no sign that she remarked his entrance. She did not so much as shoot one glance of curiosity towards him. The prince carried the letter off to his cabinet, while Wogan sat down beside the Countess and looked about the room. "'I have not seen Lady Featherstone this evening,' said he. "'Have you not?' asked the Countess easily." "'Not so much as her foot,' replied Wogan. "'The conviction came upon him suddenly. He, "'Her hurried journey to Bologna and her presence at Olau "'were explained to him now by her absence from the room. "'His own arrival at Bologna had not remained so secret as he had imagined. "'The frail and gossamer lady, too flower-like for the world's rough usage, was the woman who had spied in his room, and who had possessed the courage to stand silent and motionless behind the curtain after her presence there had been discovered. Wogan had a picture before his eyes of the dagger she had held. It was plain that she would stop at nothing to hinder this marriage, to prevent the success of his design, and somehow the contrast between her appearance and her actions had something uncanny about it. Wogan was inclined to shiver as he sat chatting with the Countess. He was not reassured when Lady Featherstone boldly entered the room. She meant to face him out. 
he remarked however with a trifle of satisfaction that for the first time she wore rouge upon her cheeks End of chapter four